just past 7 o'clock and still so much to get to tonight. It's Iron Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. And I say so much to get to, Ira, because we're not going to spend an hour talking about coronavirus. We'll touch on it for a second and the ramifications, but we've got a real sports show to do. And uh, coming up first in just a minute here, it's going to be John Feinstein. Been on the show before. He's amazing. Tell us about him. He's one of the, the, the number one uh, author of sports books. And in this time, we talked about this uh, last week, in this time when really there's no sports on TV, anything to do, his 42 books he wrote. Um, he has a book that he's going to talk about today about the back roads to March. And it's like something if you're sitting at home and you want your sports, you want to deal with sports, read a book. And his books for young adults and for adults, as you can read with your son or read with your, your, your daughter and read the same book at the same time and talk about it. So there's still, it'll be great to have him on the show to talk about um, to talk about his current book, The Back Roads of March. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Also, uh, Mike Isolino is going to join us at uh, 7.30. Big week for him. Tell us about it. Well, he was able to, one of the few teams that got his tournament in and they were able to win the Northeast Conference Championship uh, in Pittsburgh on Tuesday in front of uh, 4,000 fans and it was like the probably the last big college game played so congratulations to Mike we'd love to have him on he didn't get his chance to play in the tournament but it'll be great to have him talk about his season Robert Morris he started the year uh, two and eight and came back and won 20 games so it's pretty remarkable season crazy and I uh, will catch up with him at 730 but let's bring him in it's John Feinstein joining us here on Iron Sports John thank you so much for joining us Ira, my pleasure. Uh, not the best of circumstances, uh, but uh, it's good to talk to you again. Yes, I mean, certainly your thoughts about, I mean, we certainly have this uh, coronavirus and, and with the Masters. I mean, last week, no one would have thought we'd be in a situation where the Final Four would be canceled and the Masters postponed to whenever. So your just thoughts about that. Well, I, I think I'm like everybody else, especially those of us who are sports fans and, or who, in my case, work in sports. Uh, it's very sad. It's very disappointing. Uh, you guys were just talking about Mike Isolino's Robert Morris team. I mean, they, they, they beat a very good St. Francis team in the championship game of the NEC, and, and the kids I know were looking forward to Sunday, brackets going up, seeing their name go up against, no doubt, a, a big-name team, and they don't get to do that. And, and none of the kids, for, for kids like who play at Robert Morris, who play at Hofstra, who play at, at Vermont or Hartford, who were supposed to play the America East Championship game, Boston University, those were the kind of, of players, coaches, teams I wrote about in the back roads to March, for whom getting to the NCAA tournament is almost certainly going to be the pinnacle of their basketball careers, because most aren't going to play in the NBA. A few may play minor league basketball or European uh, play overseas, but for most, the idea of seeing their name go up on Selection Sunday and getting the walkout onto the court and knowing they have a chance if they get in they have a chance history proves that umbc proved that two years ago loyola proved it when they went to the final four two years ago that's the pinnacle for these kids and now none of them get the chance to play and i think that's very sad and we're going to get into your book, The Backroads of March. I read it this weekend. It was tremendous. And I just said, I don't know if you heard what I said, but uh, I think you wrote 42 books. So if you're sitting at home for the next few weeks and have nothing else to do, <laughs> every one of your book is fantastic. And also, I think I, I, I actually, one of my friends said, look, I, I, I'd like to watch sports with my son. And that's the bonding experience. I said, well, read a book with him. And then, I, and then also, like, maybe give, if you can't visit your grandfather, have, like, the grandfather read the book at the same time the son or the, the daughters, the granddaughters reading the book. Because you have a lot of books, like we had you on for the Prodigy about uh, that would be, was a perfect book for for young adults to read with with an adult. Well, I appreciate that, Ira, because uh, as I have written thirteen books that are 
uh, skew to young adults, kids 10, 12, and up. The Prodigy is sort of a tweener. Kids can certainly read it, uh, but a lot of adults told me they loved it. It's set at the Masters. It's fiction, um, but there are a lot of real people who appear in it, as in all of my uh, fiction, real people appear, and I think it gives you uh, quite a view of what it's really like to be at the Masters because I've covered it 29 times. Uh, and uh, I like the way you think. People are going to have a lot more time to read in the next couple of months. So um, start with the back roads to March and work your way back. <laughs> That's good. Um, and before we get into the talk about back roads to March, because it was truly a phenomenal book, I loved it. Uh, but I want to just, and I saw you at the Honda Classic. You know how big the Honda Classic here is in West Palm Beach, and Ken Kennedy's work on it. And, and I was there and I covered it. I was giving doing live reports. Just your impressions about this year's Honda Classic and, and just the, in general. Well, I, I think Ken Kennerly has done an amazing job building the Honda from what was sort of the skip-over event on, on the old Florida swing. People would go play Doral, then they'd skip the Honda, then they'd play Bay Hill, and then they'd play the players. But when they moved the Honda to PGA National, which is a terrific golf course, and put Ken in charge, it completely changed the profile of the tournament. Uh, they began to get the big names. The, the schedule changed, jumping Mexico in front of them has not helped. But as you know, Ira, Rory McIlroy has won the tournament. Tiger Woods has come and played uh, on a number of occasions. Uh, and, and really, they, they've had just about every one of the top players in the world come there at one time or another. The field wasn't quite as strong this year, uh, but it was still a very good field. Uh, I felt for Tommy Fleetwood and the way his tournament ended, hitting his second shot in the water at 18. He says he didn't hear that loud screaming uh, put it put it in the hole or whatever he said in the middle of his backswing when he hit it in the water. But I, I still have to believe that affected him. Sun J.M. was certainly a worthy champion, great young player, only 21 years old. Um, but that, that finishing hole is, is a tremendous finishing hole because, as we found out, it's such a risk-reward type of hole. So, again, we're talking to John Feinstein, his author of The Backroads of March. It's available in Doubleday. Um, you can, it's available by audiobook and also by the print edition. So uh, you decided to spend an entire year, and if you were going to spend it, people would think if you were going to spend a year talking about, you know, going to every college basketball game, you got Duke, Carolina, and Indiana, someone, or whatever, but you chose to cover the small schools, the schools with the, from the one-bid conferences, and, and, and bring to light their stories. Yeah, and you know, I, I've, I've, I've done both kinds of, of books. I, I spent a year with Bob Knight when I did Season on the Brink. I did a book on ACC basketball years ago. But some of the books that I've enjoyed the most involve athletes and coaches who aren't in the spotlight. I did a book on the Army-Navy football rivalry, A Civil War, which a lot of people still think is my best book and certainly was up there for me personally. Uh, I did a book on... Patriot League basketball. I did a book on PGA Tour qualifying school. So I, I like to go look for stories that no one else is looking for. I, I get great pleasure out of having someone say to me after reading a book or a story that I've written, wow, I never knew that. If you write about Tiger Woods, if you write about Mike Krzyzewski or Roy Williams or, or any of the, the stars uh, who are on ESPN every night, you're not likely to have someone come up and say, gee, I never knew Zion Williamson was really good. <laughs> uh, but if you're writing about kids from Army and Campbell and Longwood and, and uh, Harvard, you are very likely to have people come up and say, geez, I never knew that. And that gives me great pleasure. And the response to this book, it's only been out two weeks, but the response to this book has been tremendous. The reviews have been great. The sales 
have been terrific. I, I, I was concerned, obviously, for selfish reasons that not having a tournament would hurt the sales. But it seems like a lot of people are doing what you suggested, ordering online and getting the book to read uh, to fill some of the void, at least, uh, that they're going to feel the next couple of weeks. And some one of the one of the coaches. I mean, we're we've gone through this the scandal supposedly you know in the past year. But there's so many there's, of the 300 and some college basketball coaches. The vast majority of them are just such great men and working so hard to help their players. And one of those play one of those coaches you brought to light was Fran Dunphy. He's, he, I worked for Fran when I was at the University of Pennsylvania. He's been on the show. Uh, talk a little about Fran Dunphy. And, and I know you talked about about three of his games uh, during there, but especially the time when they gave him a four minute stand ovation at the his final game against Drexel at the Palestra his final game in the Palestra you're right um it, you know you know dump so he's one of those special people I've been fortunate to know for a long time dating back to his his days coaching at Penn coached at Penn for 17 years coached at Temple for 13 won 580 games there's no questioning what a great coach he he was he just retired last year um, but beyond that, he's a better person. He, he's generous. He never forgets anybody. Uh, he takes care of his players long after they're done playing for him. Um, he's, he's, he, I don't want to say he's unique because unique is one of a kind, but he's pretty darn close to it. And the story you're talking about took place in the Palestra last, uh, December 22nd of last season. Uh, they were playing Drexel. And to the credit of Zach Spiker, the, the Drexel coach, he moved the game. It was their home game to the Palestra because he knew it would be the last chance for Fran to coach in the Palestra. He, he, he played there at LaSalle. He coached there at Penn. He coached many games there at Temple, too. And he, he actually played high school games there when he was a kid growing up outside Philadelphia. So it was a special day. And what they did was, you know, usually at a basketball game, you introduce the, the, the visiting coach and then you introduce the home coach. Well, they reversed it that day. They introduced Zach Spiker first, and then the PA announcer said, uh, and, and please welcome coaching his last game in the palestra, Mr. Big Five, because that's what they call Fran, because he played at LaSalle, coached at Penn, coached at Temple, got a graduate degree at Villanova. I've told him for years he needs to do something at St. Joseph's <laughs> just to make it a clean sweep. They said, Mr. Big Five, Temple coach, Fran Dunphy. And everybody in the place, the place was sold out, stood and applauded and applauded and applauded. Uh, Dunphy was trying to get him to stop, kept saying thank you and putting his hands down to get people to stop. And they just wouldn't stop because they wanted to show their appreciation for not only what a terrific coach he's been, but also the kind of person that he is. And then you talked about, you went to Lafayette for a game and talked to Fran O'Hanlon, someone who was on Coach Duffy's staff, and I know, know Coach O'Hanlon. Right. And you have one of the greatest lines. You wrote the, from the chorus line, all I need is the music, a mirror, and a place to dance. And you, when you looked at Fran O'Hanlon, you said, all O'Hanlon needs is a team, a gym, and a place to compete. I just love that line that you had. Well, thank you. Um, I've only seen a chorus line about 14 times. Um, my dad told me I had to go see it years ago, and uh, he, was, he, he was clearly right. And that, that's dumb. Uh, excuse me, that, that's Fran. Um, he loves to coach. He's 71. He's still going strong. Lafayette won 19 games this season. Um, probably would have been in one of the secondary tournaments because uh, Boston University rep would have represented the Patriot League uh, in postseason. He completely turned around the Lafayette program when he took over 24 years ago. Uh, and uh, he, he's one of those guys... He, you, you've met him. You dealt with him, Iris, so you know what I'm talking about. One of the things he and Dump have in common is they're both so self-deprecating. 
they both always when they win it's because of their players when they win lose it's because of their coaching and that's dumb uh that's also fran and i you know i years ago i did a book on patriot league basketball and actually lafayette won the league championship that year uh and that's when i got to know dump uh i keep saying dump I, oh fran they're both friends that's where i get confused <laughs> Um, more than 20 years ago, and I'm glad he's still coaching, and I'm glad I still get to go to games up there at Lafayette. And then you went back to some small schools that have big name coaches. You had you talked to, to Tubby Smith, who was a yep. four national championship winner at Kentucky at High Point College, and Jim Calhoun, three time championship winner from Connecticut, coaching at Division Three St. Joseph's. And that was just it was. I loved how you wove their stories in the book in terms of they're not getting the chartered flights, they're riding the buses, and but they have all the rings and the titles and everything. Yeah, you know, let me start with with Jim who. Jim and Tubby are both examples of, of a theory I've always had. Coaches coach. You, even when they retire, they still want to coach. They miss it. Uh, Dean Smith told Roy Williams years ago, don't retire too young. I retired too young. He kind of got driven out of the game uh, by spoiled players who weren't any fun to coach, and that was a shame. But uh, Tubby Smith, as you mentioned, won the national championship at Kentucky. Um, and uh, the, oh, well, let me talk about Calhoun first. Jim won three national championships at UConn and had to retire because he, he had a second cancer scare. He has since had two more, believe it or not, and is still going strong at 77. But a friend of his called to say, um, we're starting a men's basketball program at the University of St. Joseph's. This is West Hartford, Connecticut, not Philadelphia, Division Three <laughs> school, as you mentioned. Who should I hire to coach? And Jim said, hire me, because he wanted to come back and coach. He didn't care where it was. Like with Fran O'Hanlon, he wanted a gym. He wanted a place to compete and kids to coach. And so he took the job at 76. And when I went up there, I got to tell you, Ira, he was as intense and crazy playing and coaching in front of 500 people in the gym at the University of St. Joseph's as he had been coaching in front of 80,000 people in Final Fours in the past. And uh, they, the, St. Joseph's lost that night on a play similar to the one you might remember when they threw a length of the court pass from Scott to Burrell. George yes. beat Clemson in the round of 16 way back in 1990. And the opponent that night, Johnson and Wales, ran an almost identical play and hit a shot to send the game into a second overtime. And after the game in the locker room, I said, well, I guess you know how Cliff Ellis felt 30 years ago now. <laughs> and Jim just looked at me and he said, you, you think this is funny? Do you really think this is funny? I don't find this funny at all. And I realized, wow, I mean, he's as into this as he ever has been, which I should have known during the game because he was screaming at the refs for 50 minutes since it was two overtimes. Uh, Tubby, a little bit different. Little, I don't want to say mellow. Coaches are, are never mellow, but not quite as intense as Jim. But coaching at his alma mater after winning a national championship, and I saw his team play at Longwood which is in Farmville, Virginia. And if you're like most people, Ira, you have no idea where Farmville, Virginia is. Um, the way I describe it is 60 miles west of Richmond and two miles east of the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and the coach at, 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 at Longwood is a guy named Griff Aldrich, who uh, was a lawyer. He was a big-time lawyer. He played Division three basketball, went to law school, and practiced law for 20 years and was making $800,000 a year. But he still had the passion for basketball. So when his college roommate, Ryan Odom, got hired at UMBC, and you, of course, remember UMBC beating Virginia in arguably the most stunning upset in NCAA tournament history, a 16 beating a 1 for the first time ever, he called Ryan and said, you know what, I'd like to coach. I, I really would. And Ryan said, 
you can come work for me. I can pay you $32,000 a year, which was a pay cut of about $770,000. But he took it, moved his wife, three kids from Houston to Baltimore. They're part of the upset two years later against Virginia. And he gets hired to coach Longwood in large part because the president of Longwood was at Virginia Law School at the same time that Griff was at Virginia Law School. So when I went down to see them play high point, Griff made the comment to me that day, this is one of the greatest coaching matchups ever. Tubby with 606 wins and a national title and me with 12 wins. (laughs) And during the game, my wife sent me a text saying, I forget where you are tonight. What time will you be home? And I texted back and I said, I'm in Farmville, Virginia. I'll be home about midnight. And she texted me back and said, you are having an affair. There's no such place as Farmville, Virginia. So the title of that chapter is, Yes, Christine, There is a Farmville. And your book, you, you really delve into some of the problems that these one-bid leagues have um, and also the coaches and the pressures that come with it um, that have it. And, and a lot of it you, it, you put the blame a lot on their athletic directors and presidents. A lot of these schools were in, like, the right conferences, but then they moved to the Conference USA, Atlantic 10, which are which teams from, like, C to, C to signing C instead of just being like, like George Mason, which is all the teams that they can drive to. And you mentioned how it's just difficult when a coach takes a team and suddenly they're moving to a different conference and then it's, then it's messed up and then the expectations change. You mentioned Phil Martelli at St. Joe's in terms of how he got fired being such a great coach and you know for all those years at St. Joseph's. Yeah, it was ridiculous that Phil got fired. It was ridiculous that Tony Shaver got fired at William & Mary. He did one of the best coaching jobs ever, uh, getting them to be a, a consistent contender in, in the uh, CAA when they were one of the worst teams in the country when he got there. He, by the way, coached Ryan Odom and Griff Aldrich at Hampton Sydney, so there's a connection there. But uh, you're right, you know, a lot of these schools – make moves from one conference to another. Often it's because of football. Old Dominion moved from the CAA, which was a perfect conference for them geographically and competitively, uh, to Conference USA, which is totally imperfect for them geographically and competitively because they wanted to play uh, at the FBS football level. Um, There are a number of schools that that have done that, move from one conference to another. Um, The best example or worst example, depending on your point of view, is Fordham. It's a great academic school, belonged, was doing very well in the Patriot League. They won the Patriot League and went to the NCAAs in 1991. And then their leadership had the brilliant idea, let's go in the Atlantic 10, which is one of the seven or eight most competitive conferences in the country. Had the number two ranked team in the country in Dayton this year. They've had final four teams. They usually get anywhere from three to five bids. Well, it's nice to dream. But in the 30 years, almost 30 years since Fordham went to the Atlantic 10, they've never come close to the NCAA tournament. They've gone through one coach. Very good coaches have come and gone. Bob Hill coached there. Derek Wittenberg coached there. Tom Pacora coached there. I happen to think they, they've had very good coaches. Jeff Neubauer, their current coach, I think is a very good coach. But there's a good chance he's going to get fired because his team was 2-16, and 3-16. and 16. They won their first game in the conference tournament before it got shut down. Um, and he's probably going to get fired, and I think he's a good coach. And you hate to see that happen to coaches because of things that are completely out of their control. Right. And 
you went to Duke, Jay Billis went to Duke, and I also went to Duke Law School. But Jay has sort of a different so opinion. Jay, by the way. Yeah, Jay, Jay went to Duke, of course. And one, one of the three of us didn't go to law school. So which <laughs> one doesn't belong and why? <laughs> that's, that's, I, actually, I graduated with Jay, and Jay played. There was a school play, and Jay played me in the school play. I was pretty infamous in law school, and he actually played me as, like, to tell the truth in the school play. But, yeah. the, but Jay's opinion is... If you're if you're a major power school, you got to get in. Like put put them all in. That the one and done right. the, the 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 single bid leagues. That's all she get is is one is one bid. And when you read your book, you're like, well, you look at teams like uh, Loyola of Chicago would have never got in the tournament if they didn't win their their conference tournament Correct. in 2019. Only Belmont and Nevada even got in. And there were other schools like uh, you know, Hofstra had 27 wins, Lipscomb 29, Furman with all their wins. And it's just this problem with the, the tournament where I I mean I would rather see these very good teams in rather than these middling have, have losing records in their conference right well first of all let me say this jay read read the book as you may know and tweeted very generously about it so <laughs> he, he he seemed to like it and and that that was very very kind of him but we disagree on this point and i think you just hit the nail on the head i believe there should be a rule that if you can't at least finish 500 in your conference you don't play in the NCAA tournament. And people will say, well, but look at the Big Ten this year. There were so many good teams, or some years in the ACC when there were so many good teams. Yeah, but all those teams have the built-in advantages of money, TV exposure, facilities, the ability to, to schedule guarantee games at home where they're almost certainly going to win those games and pad their record. Now, it doesn't always happen. You know, there are occasional upsets where – Stephen F. Austin this year going in and beating Duke, but that was their first non-conference loss at home in 20 years. So if you're going to have all those advantages, if you're going to play in a conference that gives you all of that, that gives you a conference tournament, that you're part of a TV contract that feeds you money, then you darn well better be able to finish 500 in your league if you want to qualify for the NCAA tournament. I don't think we need the ninth 10th, 11th place teams from the Big Ten or from the ACC in some years, or the 7th or 8th place team from the Big East. You just named a bunch of teams that won a lot of games last year. Furman, Lipscomb, UNC Greensboro, Hofstra. And those, and those teams, as Loyola of Chicago proves, proved, when they get a chance to play in the tournament, they often pull the upsets that make the tournament special. The one thing that separates the NCAA tournament from every other major sporting event is that David can beat Goliath. David can have his moment in the spotlight. VCU, Butler, Loyola Chicago, George Mason. Those teams made those tournaments special as opposed to a Final Four that consists of Michigan State and Duke and Kentucky and Wisconsin. I throw that out because that was the Final Four in 2015 as an example. Um, I mean, look, my alma mater won the national championship. I was happy for Mike Krzyzewski. But nevertheless, it wasn't special the way some of those other tournaments where the Cinderella's had their moment in the spotlight were. And, you know, in college football, George Mason, VCU, Loyola, Chicago, don't even play football, much less try to compete with the big boys. But in basketball, they have their chance. 
And we're talking to John Feinstein, the author of The Backroads to March by Double, Bay, Double Day Books. It's available. It's been available for two weeks. Must read if you love college basketball. It's about all the schools that probably aren't you're not familiar with, but that the stories are probably more interesting than the ones you're familiar with. Um, I, I like to. I had Bob Stoops on the show a few weeks, a few months ago, and one of his comments was, "He goes, the smartest decisions I made were the jobs I didn't take, rather than the jobs I took. Whereas he was offered lots of jobs but never took them." And you really go into detail about these coaches and their decisions in terms of, like even Porter Moser from Loyola, he was ready to go to St. John's, signed the paper, ready to go, but then decided not to go, whereas Nate Oates of Buffalo decided to go down to Alabama. It's just like, you went into their details and their, and their thinking, and uh, just talk a little about these coaches and the pressure of, should they take that next job? Like Steve Donahue goes from uh, Cornell to Boston College, and then maybe, but now he's at a great fit at Penn. In terms of their thinking, in terms of taking these jobs. Yeah, there, there's an old saying among coaches, sometimes you shouldn't run away from happiness. <laughs> and those are examples you're, exciting that, that you're citing that are perfect examples. Uh, Porter Moser, after he interviewed at St. John's last year, uh, sat on the plane going back to Chicago. He had told Mike Craig, the AD, uh, I'll let you know in 24 hours. And he wrote two letters, one, both to, to fans and alumni of Loyola, one saying, thanks for a great, great eight years. I've loved leading this program but it's time for me to take the next step. The other one was, hey, I've talked to St. John's. I was very impressed with the place, but Loyola is my home. I I feel I belong here. And he said when he finished that letter, he felt better. That was the letter he wanted to to put out to the public. He he felt home at Loyola. They'd upgraded the facilities. They'd made all the progress that the program has made to be a Final Four team and a consistent winner. And he was like, Okay, Madison Square Garden's great, and, and St. John's is in the Big East, but I love where I am. So why go someplace else that's unknown when I love where I am? Now, Nate Oates, had, who came from being six years ago, Nate Oates was a high school coach outside of, of Detroit, making $85,000 a year coaching and teaching and, and working summer camps total. And then Bobby, uh, Bobby Hurley hired him at the University of Buffalo. He knew him through recruiting one of his kids when he was at Rhode Island. And two years later, Bobby leaves, and boom, Nate Oates is the coach at Buffalo. Went through a horrible cancer scare with his wife soon after getting the job, but kept the program not only afloat, but made it even better. Uh, they won NCAA tournament games, again, won bid league teams, winning tournaments. They beat Arizona, and then Bobby Hurley's Arizona State team the next year. Coincidental matchup, right? Um, and, and he had the program in, in a place it had never been. But then along come both UCLA and Alabama, offering him the chance to coach there for big money. And, and by then he was up to about $800,000 a year at Buffalo. Alabama was offering more than $3 million a year. <laughs> and interestingly, he called both Brad Stevens, who had taken Butler to two national championship games, and he called Mark Few, who's built – the greatest mid-major program in history, except they're not a mid-major anymore. And if you want to get punched in the nose, Ira, walk up to Mark Few someday and say, hey, you've got a great mid-major program, and then duck, because they're not mid-major anymore. But he said, could, he said to Few, could, could I build a Gonzaga-type program here? And, and Mark Few said, I doubt it, because you have Division I football. And any school that has Division I football the priority is always going to be football in terms of money spent and facilities and things like that. He also spoke to Brad Stevens, who said, the problem you're going to have, even if they up you to, say, a million dollars a year, you're going to walk around knowing you are by far the highest paid person on the campus, and it's going to feel funny. (laughs) And at that point, he felt, you know what, 
I've done what I could do here. It's time to move on. And I spoke to him not long after he got to Alabama, and he said to me, John, I just got my first paycheck, and they pay monthly in the state of Alabama. He said, it's for more money after taxes than I ever made when I was coaching in high school. This is mind-boggling. And I think Nate Oates will do very well at Alabama because he's a terrific basketball coach. Well, considering the last two games I saw this year would be in the, it would be in the Robert Morris win over St. Francis last Tuesday, and then I saw three weeks ago uh, Gonzaga at Pepperdine in that small gy- uh, small gym they have at Malibu. So that was pretty I exciting. I gym, by the way, especially because yeah. you walk outside and you look right at the beach. <laughs> totally. And, it's, and, and you can sit for like, it's a dead center for like 20 bucks. So it was great <laughs> for that game. But for one last story I want you to say is I loved your, your description of the Army Duke, the Army team playing the Zion Williamson and, and, and yeah. how Army, because there you have the classic Army, the soldiers. These guys are going to be the generals of our armies against the Zions. I mean, totally two different types of people. And then I, the one line you had I loved, I'm going to probably walk over your statement, is that when Coach K once threatened his team, he said, like, if you don't practice hard enough, you're going to start to fly commercial. So yeah. Well, it's funny because I was there the day that happened. It was when I was doing my ACC book. And I quoted that line in the book. And my friend Dan Dockich actually posted it on Twitter. Um, I think today, saying that, that it's one of the greatest lines he's ever heard um, anywhere because it so symbolizes what big-time college basketball has become. But this was, as you said, a bunch of guys who were going to be in the Army when they graduated uh, going to play in one of the great college basketball cathedrals, Cameron Indoor Stadium. And for all of them, it was a great thrill. E- even their second-leading scorer, Jordan Fox, who grew up in Kentucky hating Duke, had as as his uh, uh, picture on his cell phone, you know his his uh, you know first picture you see uh, Mike Shashevsky hugging him after the game, and he said, "I never thought I'd want to be hugged by Coach K, but wow, that was a great <laughs> moment in my life." And they went in and they competed like crazy, and there was a, a point in the first half where a little guard from Philadelphia named Tommy Funk, and you know how good those Philly Catholic League guards are, Ira, and uh, stole the ball first from Zion Williamson and, 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 and then from... from um, uh, R.J. Barrett. Yes, and, and on back-to-back plays. And Krzyzewski was so upset he had to call timeout because the lead had suddenly gone from six to two. And in that timeout, Jimmy Allen turned to me and he said, who would have thought that he would have called the first timeout in this game? <laughs> and it was 48-42 at halftime. They hung in until the last ten minutes. And Krzyzewski, after the game, what he said to Jimmy Allen was, I'm so proud of, of your guys. I'm so proud of them because, obviously, he's an Army grad, and while he wanted his team to play well, he could also recognize the incredible effort that those kids put in that day. Well, John, I really I know you're busy uh, promoting the book, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, it's The Backroads to March by Double, Bay, Double Day. Um, as I said earlier in the show, he would have – so many different books for young adults and nonfiction fiction books in this time when people are stuck at their house for four weeks or five weeks or whatever it's going to be start reading books read books with your children um and john's books are some of the best books i I mean by far the best books on sports you have so i appreciate you coming on the show ira thanks for having me and congratulate coach isolino for me when you get him on okay i will thank you (laughs) oh it's 735 you're listening to ira on sports this is the true oldies channel speaking of mike isolino he is on the line mike thank you so much uh, for joining us here as a champion um robert morris of course uh won the northeast conference uh tournament uh just last week we were rooting for you hard here in south florida mike do we have mike on I think we might have lost him. We'll grab him back in just a second. Oh, yeah. He, you see, I, 
you guys might be good friends, but he doesn't want to hang on the line for five minutes waiting uh, while you're talking to John Feinstein. We'll have uh, we'll have Mike back uh, in just a second. So while we've got a moment, Ira, let's just talk really briefly about the trickle-down effects that we've seen from coronavirus. It was something that you were taken by surprise, but you had plans last week, and all of a sudden you're heading back home and basically this, taking away the most important thing in your life, is, which is traveling for sports. Well, I, there's, I mean, we certainly want the health and safety of everybody I'm concerned about, but certainly without sports, I mean, as we talked about before, it's a shame that there's some way we couldn't have sports with. Uh, in, in trying times, sports has been, even during World Wars, people have still, mm-hmm. like the NFL played during the war baseball still played during the war and it was a and it was a source of comfort to the people who were working for the relief and also for the soldiers who are listening to the games on the radio so unfortunately because of the situation we don't have that um, but it uh, is definitely I mean this is I, I am not uh, hopeful that you're going to see games for a long time and uh, and and I do feel that I think the NFL will figure it out. I mean, they have till September to figure out how to play. And you saw today they went up with their contracts and they, with their season and they did everything right now. So you're seeing the NFL, but I don't see Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NHL uh, being able to – the issue is that their players, they'll have to quarantine their players and then have the players play. And then, and then if, but they, they, then they can't be with their families. So it would have to be a situation, and there certainly can't be fans. So it's just a it's – a, it's a, you know, the one sports we're talking about is you could see golf coming back because mm-hmm. golf is just on a course. The players are near, near each other. You don't really – you wouldn't have the fans there. Tennis, even you know, MMA and those type of things where you just have a limited number of participants. Unfortunately, I'm not confident that they're going to be able to do like college football this year coming up because of just the college nature. Everything from spring sports has been canceled. So – but um, – and I think one of the trickle-down effects will be – we'll talk about this after we talk to Mike – is that, that there's going to be less money. I mean, when you see these NFL today, these contracts, it seemed a little – when Ryan Tino gets $108 million on a day when the stock market drops 20%, it's it's pretty bad. And 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 the point is how much money there's going to be available for the, the one thing is that it's, you know sports is discretionary. And when you take money yeah. out, it's the one thing that mm-hmm. won't go. We do uh, we do have him back on the line. He's Mike Isolino from Robert Morris, your Northeast Conference uh, Tournament Champions. Mike, thank you so much for uh, hopping back on with us. And congratulations once again. We're rooting for you so hard here on Iron Sports and in South Florida. No, it's always great to be on. So uh, what, uh, Ira bumps you off for John Feinstein. You just couldn't take it, huh, Mike? <laughs> well, John, Mike, uh, John just congratulated you on, on your win. I mean, he wrote a book called The Back Roads to March where he talked about uh, teams. I mean, he talked about some of the teams in the Northeast Conference. He didn't go to Robert Morris, but he spent a whole year writing about that. And we were discussing, and, and things that you and I have talked about before is how we don't think that the one bid, the quote, one bid leagues get enough credit. Uh, but on Tuesday night, uh, on front of a national television on ESPN2, I mean, the whole country was riveted to your win over St. Francis. So, uh, again, congratulations on that great win. And and, uh, uh, I guess I want to start by saying you opened the season against Pitt in a in a new gym. You have a new gym this year. And that I was there for that game and and the atmosphere was just electric. So talk about the new stadium and and that Pitt game and everything about that. Well, I I think, you know, um, you know, you talk about small college basketball, you know, I think that the atmosphere that we have in our building, uh, because it's such a beautiful building, you know, it's a $51 million arena, it's state-of-the-art, you know, not just for basketball, for a lot of reasons to, to publicize the school and to have events there, but for them to be able to build an arena like that um, is an amazing accomplishment um, to the people that were behind it. 
uh, and it really helped the fact that, you know, you're able to have a team like Pitt come in where it's, a, you know, an ACC team and it can create a lot of buzz because they're in Pittsburgh. But then to hold the playoffs there, you know, to have home court advantage throughout the playoffs, that's one of the, you know, the factors of playing in a small college conference that, you know, you if you win your league, you get uh, home court advantage. And to have a game like Tuesday night there where it's a sellout crowd of 4,200 and the atmosphere is electric on, on national TV, you know, really enhances all the things and, and really puts the exclamation point on, 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 on one of the reasons why you build a place like that. Um, and you start the season out 2-8 and eight and 4-9, and, and you finish 20-14. and 14. And I realize that in order to – you have to play these guarantee games that John Feinstein just talked about. But it was – what were you – what was – what did you feel there was a turning point in the season when you, when you were able to make that switch from going – from, you know, when, when you felt like, okay, we got, we got it back on track? Is there a time in the season where you felt like there was that one moment? No, I don't think it's the one moment. I, I think it's the understanding that, you know – the schedule that we've had to play for the four years that I've been there, um, I don't think we've ever had more than five or six wins in the non-conference. So um, we don't get worried about the wins and the losses in the non-conference. We, we concern more ourselves about are we getting better? Are we improving? Are we practicing the right way? Are we doing the right things as a coaching staff? Do we have the right you know, are we cover, doing the ball screen coverages right? Um, you know, I think there's is the offense improving every day. You know, I think those are the things that, you know, as a veteran staff that's been through that. You know, I've been with Andy for four years. And, and again, all, all four years, we probably, I think our best record might have been, you know, six and seven in the non-conference or whatever. Um, so we don't really concern ourselves with the record as we do of uh, the improvement. And I think the one thing that we felt really good about, um, I think one of the things that started happening probably sometime in, uh, in December is that, you know, the practices were getting better. The offense was moving at a better pace. Um, you know, we were still making some adjustments defensively. Um, so what we felt about really good about where the thing that we were, where we were going. And then down, you know, near the end of December, you know, we had a great win at Florida Gulf Coast. And then we had a really good win at home against Central Michigan. Then we went out to Vegas and played pretty well. So we were pretty confident going into the, to the Northeast Conference uh, season that we were doing things the right way. And if we continue to work and continue to uh, improve, that we'd have a lot of success. And we also had the experience of, you know, the years before. You know, one year we started out 5-1 and one or 7-1. and one. Um, So and when we had a great start this year, we kept focusing on, okay, what were the mistakes that we made when we were seven and one and ended up, you know, uh, nine and nine or eleven and eight, eleven and you know, eleven and eight? So we wanted to, didn't want to make the same mistakes that we made before, and uh, I think that experience really helped us this year. And you start two brothers, uh, John and Josh Williams. And I, other people have said this, and I saw this, if there's one play in the championship game uh, when John was dribbling the ball and, and he was about to take a three, and I don't think he, Josh said anything, but at the last minute he just literally dropped the ball over his head, like almost literally instead of taking the shot and just almost set a pick for it. It was like a perfect play, and I think only two brothers could have made that play. Only two people that have probably shot a million balls between them would have been able to, to be sensing that. And, and talk about how, they, how their chemistry helped you this year. 
Yeah, I think, you know, it's a great story for those two. You know, Josh had played at Akron before, and he came up short in, in two championship games before. So for him to come here and, and get to the NCAA tournament with his brother is, is, is quite an accomplishment. But, you know, the thing about those two guys is you root for them every day because both of them do things the right way. Uh, both of them are extremely hard workers. Both of them are committed to the team and submit to the program um, and are really just committed to winning basketball games. So they're two type of guys that, that you know, you really root for, um, you know, every single day because they do things the right way and, 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 and you know, they embellish the things that, that the program, you know, strives on, you know, toughness and hard work and guys who are committed to, the, to winning basketball games. And those guys do that on a daily basis. And then we talked about, you mentioned it before the show, I mean, uh, at the beginning of the show, uh, that it's really important to have these conference games at, on your home court because it, you're, you're only a, really a one-bid league, and it, it, to not to have to play in a neutral court for a conference championship game makes no sense because you have to give credit. The fact you were the, the number two seed was actually the number one seed. You fit a second to Merrimack, but you were the number one seed in the tournament. And how the value of having that on your home court for those championship games and some of the conferences that do that really hurt their good teams. Yeah, I think for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think it makes the, the regular season have a lot more meaning. Um, you know, some of the bigger conferences, obviously, they get double buys, so it has a little more meaning and everything like that. But I don't think ha- any any conference, any team that has their home court advantage, that, that regular season means a whole lot to be the number one seed. And, two, I think in those type of, uh, those type of uh, situations in small college basketball like that, you know, to have the home court advantage and to create that atmosphere um, is really a unique experience that, that – guys probably wouldn't experience if they went to a neutral site because you go to a neutral site, you're probably not going to get the, the amount of energy in the building or fans in the building because people don't travel as much. Um, you know, when you have a, a home court advantage, you know, you're talking 4,000 people in our arena and the building's electric and, you know, it just makes for, for an incredible experience for the guys, um, especially when you can come out on top and have your fans storm the court. It's a, it's really a, a once-in-a-lifetime feeling for those guys to, to, to experience that. And, uh, and again, like I said, it mean, means a lot the regular season to win that. We're talking to Mike Isolino, uh, assistant head coach of the uh, Robert Morris Colonials, who won the Northeast Conference and had a chance to play in the NCAA tournament. Didn't really, they won the conference they were going to play in the NCAA tournament, but, of course, it was canceled um, in that championship game against St. Francis of Pennsylvania where you had split with them and also it's you're famous from playing at St. Francis so you're really going against your alma mater but DeAndre Tracy uh, came up I mean amazing he had played only 25 minutes but had 18 points on 8-11 shooting and five assists and was just one of those players that just was ready to admit to play for the big game and just talk a little bit about Deontay's contribution and how he he's grown with it with the team. Yeah, well, number one, I think he, he, not just in that game, but I think he had a phenomenal sophomore season. Um, you know, he was he was the difference maker for us because he was that breakdown point guard that could really help guys get other shots um, that, that always couldn't create off the dribble. And, you know, you see his confidence grow uh, from start to finish. Uh, and he just had an incredible season. And, and in that game, you know, 
Coach Tool made a comment afterward that, that the game rewards toughness. And I don't know if there's any player on our team as tough as Dante Tracy. Um, you know, he works hard every day. Um, he worked hard to improve every single day. But he just has a sense of confidence and a sense of toughness about him. Um, you know, and he was guarding uh, the best player pretty much all year. And, and he's only 5'9", five, 5'10", five, max. Uh, incredible athlete, but just small, small guy. But, you know, not only was he guarding uh, the Northeast Conference Player of the Year, and, and really held him down, but he also was being guarded by him the whole game, and was able to just, uh, you know, to dominate that matchup. And that becomes, you know, that becomes really important in those games. Who's going to win individual matchups? Obviously, it's a team game, but the more individual matchups you can win, uh, the better off you're going to be. And he and he he played unbelievable in the whole conference tournament with a lot of confidence, and uh, you know, just. Uh, really, really uh, showed on national TV what that kid's all about. Yes, I mean, a lot of people you know, come up to me and say, I feel, I feel bad for Mike because they didn't get a chance to play in the tournament. But I, I also say that he really had that Tuesday night game when it was the probably the main game on TV. I know Gonzaga was playing op- opposite that on ESPN, but you had millions of viewers watching you. And, and to have that win at home, as much as you didn't get a chance to play in the tournament, it's still that it was just a, what a special night to have that on that last Tuesday night. Yeah, and we tried to we tried to to relate that to our guys when we had the final meeting of saying, listen, one of the things that you'll always have in your life is the fact that you actually won the tournament and earned your way into the NCA. Um, you know, it wasn't, hey, you're the number one seed. We got to cancel the tournament. We're going to give you the championship. You actually won that game. You got the fans to storm the court. You got the, all the excitement of winning a Northeast Conference championship. Now, I will say, with that being said. Um, you know, and I felt like that too. There was no question yesterday. Uh, there was a little disappointment, a little sadness to know that, you know, to hear your name on Selection Sunday, it wasn't going to be called. There, there, there was some disappointment um, and just, uh, you know, a few hours of like, wow, this is kind of a bummer. But, uh, you know, you try to take the positives because you know that the situation is way bigger than, than sports and, you know, you just wish everybody – the best in the you know their health and uh, the well-being of this country you know what i mean but there was some disappointment yesterday a little bit that you don't get to hear because part of that experience of winning a championship is that selection sunday when they tell you where you're going and call your name it's a, it's a great great experience also so um you know we had one of the two so out of it but uh you know it was a great great night tuesday night for 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 our program because you know we've been We've been fighting for four years. Um, you know, nine out of ten years we've made the semifinals um, and, and won one championship. But, but for four years we've dealt with a lot, probably more so than anything, everybody else in our conference in terms of the amount of transfers we've had to high major programs, the things we've had to deal with that way. And to, to finally be able to have some, some continuity in the program and some guys, you know, um, really believing in what we're doing and staying with it. And, and to finish it off to win a championship, um, it was a great feeling for us. Well, it was great. I mean, again, it was it's going to be the last, probably one of the last, the last 40 events I've go to in a while, and I just have great memories from it, and I'm proud of, uh, of the, your team and yourself and, and, and in terms of winning the, the conference championship. So, uh, once again, thanks a lot, Mike, for coming on the show, and, uh, and just stay healthy and stay safe. Yeah, it would have been. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been fun this year when uh, 
you know, you guys were telling me to do all the predictions, I might have been able to predict Robert Morris going like I did uh, Buffalo over Arizona two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's Ira on Sports on the True Oldies Channel 751. Thank you so much to Mike Isolino. You, you know, we were talking about the NFL, and let's get into this for a little bit. New CBA was approved. Um, me and you both kind of hate it, um, but obviously this isn't for us because it's been proven that we uh, people will consume football as much as you give it to us. So this is really about the owners, and it's about the million players that aren't named Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers that you know really need this this money because their career could be short lived. Tell us about the details. Well, it was a, it's a ten year deal. It only won by sixty votes, so it's very close. But and also hundreds of players didn't even vote on this. So you would yeah. think that they would be involved, and it was weird. But it it it, you're, it definitely is. Going to the players liked it because they at the lowest level, the minimum wage, they got an extra hundred thousand, almost doubled their minimum salaries. Mm -hmm. And there's less penalties for marijuana and the practice squads. There's more positions, more practice squad players, and the rosters expanded. So there's more jobs, there's more availability, those things. And so, I mean, it, and considering all this was going on, I was not surprised that it passed because yeah. you want certainty rather than uncertainty uh, with that. But once it passed, then the league went right into their new year. I mean, I, again, it's it was very weird to have everything that's going on today and having these players sign these hundred million dollar contracts uh, I it's like <laughs> I mean it's like the the NFL will go on like we have like a nuclear war and the NFL is still gonna function along and roll along and uh, and it's good though because there's still something I mean there's something to talk about in sports and people are interested about it and take their mind off so I mean I could see the reasons for both to, to actually have this go on but uh, today was a very active day in the NFL it, it really was um, one of the things I hate though Ira and I think it goes back to being um, just loving statistics is adding another game because now it completely throws everything in history out of whack. I'm sure you went through this when they went from 14 to 16. It's just like, well, these stats kind of don't matter anymore because they're all going to be beat going forward. But now for me and you, we were just discussing how do you work out some teams playing nine home games versus eight for others? Yeah, I think that's uh, either one conference is going to have to play nine and then the other at home and then eight and, and reverse it it's not really fair to have to the one team an extra home game because you're going to this odd team I mean, if they went to 18 maybe that's what the owners really want is just to go to 18 games it's not 17 it's seems like 17 is mm -hmm. just a unworkable number but you had a good idea too well i, I was thinking you host at one neutral site game per year for every single team we already you know, Jacksonville goes to England like 12 times a year. We're going to Mexico City. Wouldn't it be cool to see, say, Seattle and San Francisco play at the University of Oregon in a neutral site game? You're going to still bring the fans, and you have great facilities through from colleges all throughout the world. You can go to Toronto for games. I think this is a slam dunk, but it's just going to be hard to maybe work out um, logistically. Well, the league said they weren't going to do that. They weren't going to play them in England, but I think everything is open. I mean, certainly we can't predict anything, but that was uh, in terms of what's going to happen with considering what's happening now. But um, it'll be—it was weird. I mean, the owners really wanted that that extra game, and it—it it didn't look like it was going to pass when they first announced it. Everybody, all the players said, "No, we yeah. don't want 17. We don't want 17." And they got, it. and then there'll be two extra playoff teams also. And, yeah, I don't like that and how that's going to shape up, but um, that's neither here nor there. So. Uh, you're talking about big contracts being signed. I have to assume you're talking about Ryan Tannehill because he was the big one. I got to tell you, I'm a Tannehill supporter more than a detractor. I think he got a bad shakeout here in Miami, um, and I think he looked good in flashes with a running defensive-focused team, but that's a lot of money, Ira. 
118 million, 63 million guaranteed on a team that is the focus. I mean, he's throwing like 15 balls and 12 balls. I, I just, it's an amazing contract. And I mean, I'm happy for Ryan Tannehill as I agree with, but I was shocked that that just, when that contract was, I'm like, what? I mean, that is, <laughs> I mean, considering with what's happening today and everything, and I'm like, Ryan, I mean, I thought Ryan Tannehill could get injured signing that. Like if they put that in front of him, like <laughs> if it was on, if he was at a desk with them, he would probably hurt his back trying to reach over. Like how fast can I sign that you won't take this contract with? So do you think there might have been a slight bit of collusion seeing that Mike Vrabel and Tom Brady are friends and Vrabel and the Titans just knew Brady wasn't coming and so let's get our guy locked up? Well, clearly that the Tennessee is off the table and that's not going to yeah. happen. So that, that was that, the Ryan Tannehill move made it. But I'm sure Vrabel knew that Brady wasn't going to come. Uh, so let's talk about Brady. What's the Brady sweepstakes looking like to you? Well, there's no San Francisco. All the word out of San Francisco is that they're not. I don't the think rest, they ever were. I don't not know gonna, where that came from. They're not going to dump Jimmy. And so really, it comes down to uh, to the, the the two favorites would be New England and uh, Tampa. And Tampa, Bruce Arians is their coach. Uh, they have uh, you know, Mike Evans and and Godwin as their wide receivers. The best one two in the league. One beyond. I mean, Godwin's a number one almost any yeah, team. Exactly. And uh, and they're willing to pay him whatever he wants. I mean, mm -hmm. forty million a year, whatever. They have the cap space uh, to do that. And I think that that's that like. But the question is, does he want to finish his career in Tampa? I mean, that doesn't seem. The great place where your Tampa to go, and the other one would be San Diego uh, and Vegas. I think right now it would be. I mean, we're hearing mystery teams, but I guess San Diego, Vegas, and Tampa. And if you want to throw out a crazy idea, it would be Dallas because if suddenly if Jerry Jones was like, yeah, I'm, I cannot. They, somehow Dak Prescott is not signing this contract, and I have no, especially what's going on in this world. I have no idea why he's not signing. I mean, they're offering him uh, hundreds of millions of dollars guaranteed, and he won't sign that contract, and he wants more. And I just don't even on the best of times I don't think he should get that in the worst of times I don't know what he's doing yeah, especially with the uncertainty of a new coach who knows if Mike McCarthy is going to want Dak Prescott he, it would have been nice to get that money locked up but they have issued a franchise tender uh, a franchise tag to Dak Prescott so if once he signs, it is going to be a one-year thing. It's a one-year deal. It's the average of the top five position, and that's the one thing that's still in this contract is that there's one player. It used to be two. You could try, one is you could transition or franchise, but it's a little complicated. But you can France say you just you take one player and say, look, you're my. This is what we're going to pay you, which is an enormous amount of money, but it's not the five-year, the high guarantee. Mm -hmm. It's only going to be the top five of the position, or the average of that position. So Ira, I'm always at my computer and. You know, every now and then one of us breaks a story, quote unquote, where you're the first person to see it. You send it out to all your friends. And this one, Ira, I got back a dozen. What? You're kidding me. DeAndre Hopkins is going to Arizona. And the deal seems a little lopsided. It, it, everyone's giving it an F minus for the uh, Texans. <laughs> People don't know who DeAndre Hopkins is. He's very quiet. He doesn't, he's not like Odell Beckham, but he's had 111, uh, 78, 96, 115, 104 receptions. He's averaged 1,400 receiving yards uh, the last three years. He's under contract for three years and 39 million, which is not that bad at all. And he's all, and he's plays every game. Just it doesn't cause problems. And by the way, his quarterbacks for all those years hasn't been had, many of those years besides Watson have been uh, Brock Ols Osweiler yeah. and Matt Schwab and those type of things. And he's put up these amazing numbers. And it was just like almost given away uh, for uh, for a, a second round pick. It was it was just it was unbelievable, just given away. And there for Dave Johnson. And so Arizona traded Dave Johnson, who two years ago people might say, wait, didn't I draft him in the top five of my fantasy? But the last two years he's been nothing yeah. and he's owed a lot of money he's owed almost 13 million dollars in his contract and as people said he probably would get most get like two million dollars 
and the Texans already have Duke Johnson where they gave a third round pick for that so this con this trade doesn't make any sense um, it's it doesn't it's it's a completely insane deal and Bill O'Brien is being criticized by the coach and the general manager of the Texans for making this because he clearly didn't get along with DeAndre Hopkins but Hopkins was not the type of guy that was going to cause problems at, at anything but they people said there was friction but just to give up I, I can't believe there wasn't a better deal on the table for Th that's what I'm surprised about that there wasn't a better deal and there was another trade today and that team got a lot for one of their players so I wouldn't consider up there with DeAndre Hopkins but as you said DeAndre Hopkins he's a top three wide receiver in this league you got a superstar for a second round pick I just I don't understand what's going on there and like what's even more baffling is that three years at 13 million a year really not too bad there is highway robbery by Arizona and I think it helps I think with Kyler Murray and then you have Larry Fitzgerald like this is perfect like you're yeah. really looking for Arizona I like the move because Fitzgerald's coming back for another year Kyler Murray needs this this is really you invested so much in drafting Kyler Murray as your number as a number one player in the draft and it's going to fit perfectly he's the perfect wide receiver for Kyler yeah. and I I think this was a brilliant stroke. I mean, this is really great for Arizona. Yeah, like you said, I mean, there's a lot of receivers, the Odell Beckhams of the world, that you don't want to put with a rookie quarterback because it's just going to cause headaches. DeAndre Hopkins goes to work, shuts up, does his job to the highest level. That's who I want with my young, uh, young rookie. Um, let's talk about the other trade. DeForest Buckner is headed to the Colts. The, the, a huge portion of why the 49ers are in the Super Bowl was that defensive line last year. I think DeForest Buckner is fantastic. Been, I loved him since Oregon. He's now the second highest paid in the league, um, just behind uh, our boy Aaron Donald. But this was a first-round pick, and this one's a little confusing to me, too. They re-signed Eric Armstead. I guess Buckner has more trade, um, you know, more trade leverage, so I understand this. But for the Colts... This was a quarterback drafting draft, and now they don't have a first-round pick anymore. I'm a little puzzled by that. Well, I'm not because I think that they're they're targeting Phillip Rivers. They must right. be. They they really they want and they're they're in win now mode, and I think that they want Phillip Rivers, who was a quarterback for the L.A. Chargers and for many many years, and I think that's who they want. They're gonna. They, I think I think this this shows that they're focused to have to bring Rivers in, and maybe they draft another quarterback in the second round, uh, in the second or third round to to, uh, to you know sit behind Rivers for a couple years. But I think this was just shows that they're going after Rivers, and they really need to shore up their defense. And, and they paid him a monster, I mean, twenty-one million dollars yeah. guarantee every year for so. a defensive tackle. Yeah. You just don't see that every day. He is great, though. I, I, I won't take that away from him. Um, Kirk Cousins going to get a little bit of a bump in his pay, pay grade, and Stephon Diggs is heavily rumored to be the next guy on the move. Well, they gave him another. I mean, Cousins has done well being, you know, there's a lot of criticism. They thought that job in Minnesota would open up, and it is not going to open up. He signed a two-year extension, so he's going to be there. So when you look at some of these free agents, we have a lot of free agent quarterbacks that are out there. Uh, that was one position in Minnesota. Like, well, maybe they're going to give up on Cousins. Well, they didn't, and they re they re-upped him for another two years. And now Diggs, they're wide receiver who had problems with Cousins. I think he was, I mean, he tweeted out when Cousins signed the contract, he he was upset that Cousins signed the contract. So. <laughs> um, yeah, no, and that just is, I, I don't get what the, the rift is between Diggs, Cousins, and that whole team, but I would be very shocked to see him in, uh, in purple and gold to start this season. Uh, Miami Dolphins made a nice little move here. Shaq Lawson loved him in college, underwhelmed for a, a while in, in Buffalo, but seemed to be coming into his own, and he's coming to South Florida. Well, he played, uh, Shaq, he plays defensive line. He played for the Dolphins defensive line coach, uh, Marion Hobby, at Clemson. So the guy who's going to be coaching him at the Dolphins coached him in college. And there's someone who they really wanted, uh, wanted on. I mean, the Dolphins need help everywhere, and they felt like Shaq was going to provide that, that help. And, and I was surprised. I mean, from a... Uh, 
the Buffalo needed to give him up because I thought it was uh, you know Buffalo's defense was great last year. Yeah. And I think that, that I think this was a good signing. It's, it appears to be a good signing for the Dolphins. This is a questionable signing to me, Ira. Austin Hooper, who I think is a great receiving tight end. He can block too. I, I think he's a really good player. Austin Hooper is going to the Browns. They've got David Njoku, who they invested a first-round pick in. Granted, the kid doesn't really stay on the field that much, but I didn't look at receiving tight end as one of their biggest issues. Now they're going to tie up a big chunk of money on a tight end. They love Hooper. I mean, Hooper played for the Falcons. He had 75 catches last year for 787 yards and six touchdowns. He only had one drop at 97 targets. And as much as they had Njoku as the as – the, uh, tight end there's a lot of injuries the Browns tight ends combined only for 41 uh, catches which is surprising and so they thought Hooper I mean they're trying to give they're trying I mean they're trying to get Baker Mayfield every weapon possible yeah. with Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham Jr. and now Hooper and you know, Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb. I mean, that it's like if they can't get it done this year on offense, they'll never get it done. They had a bottom uh, bottom five offensive line last year as well. They're going to shore that up a little bit with Jack Conklin from Tennessee. Right. Another. I mean, they're just. It's amazing that they have so much money to spend. They've done yeah, well. It's they just keep spending money. <laughs> they're and they're still going to go out and get a tackle. I, I, I strongly believe their first round pick well, a tackle. Mayfield so. is still under his rookie. It just shows you. We've talked yeah. about this before. When you have a when your starting quarterback is on a rookie contract and not making thirty million or thirty five million, when he's only making five or six million. That's a nuts more money you have to give to everybody else. Yeah, and of course, I mean, we see what happens once teams pay that quarterback yes. and have to cut five guys. Any other uh, franchise tags you want to run through here, real quick? Uh, from the Steelers, Bud Dupree. Uh, you like that, that move? What, well, it, they had to release Mark Barron, but I, I did like it because it keeps him with uh, JJ Watt or TJ uh, 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 Watt, and yeah. it, I think they they were a perfect complement. And I, I love the Steelers' defense last year, and I thought Dupree, his first few years, I w- was never going to be franchised, but I think now he was. And I think the Steelers are going to work out a longer-term deal with him, too. I mean, just because of these players, a number of players got franchised today, but that doesn't mean that teams cannot work out a long-term deal with them. It was just a way so they couldn't sign a free agent contract with anybody else. So uh, Titans are going to franchise Derrick Henry. They, this was a, you saw this one coming. Nobody wants to give a, a, a running back a, a long deal. So franchise the guy. What, what this was here for? Well, the Titans, I think, are doubling down on their team from last year. They're like, we came so close to, to you know getting the Super Bowl. We think we can beat the Chiefs. We have Tannehill. We have Henry. We I, I think from the perspective is that the, we're going to bring Henry back. Uh, we're going to have Tannehill, and we're, our young wide receivers, AJ Brown, are going to improve so much this year that they think. I mean, Vrabel's confident with this team. I mean, they Tennessee thinks they're one of the elite teams in the AFC, which they you know, showed last year. And let's see if, but let's see if this year they can get the home field advantage and do play that well. Head-scratcher for me here, Ira, and it's going to stay in the AFC South. It's the Jaguars franchising Ibionic and Goku. This team seems to be in full-on sell mode. They just got rid of Clayus Campbell, Pro Bowler, the last three years since they signed him. They get, they're get they just letting everyone walk out the door. Then they're using a franchise tag on a defensive end? I don't I don't get this one. No, I mean, it's that it's very weird. I, I I don't know if he's going to sign it. I mean, just the other thing is they franchised all these players. These players get all franchised, and then some... Uh, some will sit out. Like they don't. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's only if they sign the franchise, but then they have to sit out. Is sort of that would that would be the issue? Is are like Le'Veon Bell. Le'Veon Bell was franchised, but never signed the franchise tag, mm-hmm. so then just sat out the whole year. I don't think that's gonna happen. But uh, and a lot of these players are gonna work out longer term deals. But that was it's a for the Jacksonville. The question is the Nick Foles, uh, Gardner Minshew. Yeah. Who's gonna be their quarterback? And they, they said competition. And they said it's a competition. So it'll be interesting. But. 
Uh, boy, a lot of movement in Miami, into Miami, Jacksonville, and Tampa. There's a lot going on here in South Florida. <laughs> Ira, we are out of time. So what are you going to do on a week where there's no sports to go to? Well, I hope everyone's – I'm going to read a lot, and I think I'm going to write, and, and we should hope everyone stays safe. And uh, hopefully, I mean, we're going to continue to do the show, and, and we're going to have authors on. I have an author next week who is uh, with Sam Hickey who did the process. So he's got a great book, amazing book about the process. And um, we have a – I'm on my Facebook page. We have a list of all the authors we've had on our show. As I said, people are sitting at home. Probably should go in and read some of these books. We've had, we've had a great authors. Feinstein has 42 books you can read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the things you probably can do during this time. And I just hope everybody stays safe and, he- safe and healthy. We are out of time. I want to thank uh, Mike Isolino from Robert Morris, also John Feinstein for stopping by. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.